You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriters. My name is Mark Lintenmeyer. My guest for episode 174 is Drew Grow. You're right now hearing the song Lights by his early band Kareen from their 2005 album Crash Couture. He released his first solo album in 2007, has released about four albums since then with various project names, including his newest band, Slang, a partnership with Janet Weiss, who is best known as drummer for Sleater Kinney and the spin-off band from that Wild Flag, as well as Stephen Malcolm's and the Jicks. We're going to talk about Cockroach in a Ghost Town, which is the title track from Slang's new album, and look back to his band Modern Kin from their self-titled album 2014. The song is called Abandon. And then all the way back to that first solo album Next Lips 2007, the song is called Spider. We'll conclude by listening to another song from Cockroach in a Ghost Town, King Gun. For more information, you can see killrockstars.com, their label for Slang, or just look up Slang, Drew Grow, Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives, or Modern Kin, the streaming service of your choice. For more about this podcast, see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. And if you want to support the effort and get my notes for the episode, go to patreon.com slash nakedlyexaminedmusic. So I will play a little bit of Lights by your childhood band, Kareen, from their 2005 album, Crash Couture. We're going to get pretty quickly to your solo stuff, but was this Kareen like while you were in college, right after college? What's the shape of your career here? And it seems like we've bounced through a number of band names over the years. That's definitely part of my story is switching it up. Like every few years, it's just been a switch, you know, for really natural reasons or whatever, just the life of a band and survival of a band or whatever, you know, you tour hard and then everybody wants to go home and do the next thing. So that was right as I finished college. I was in that band Five O'Clock People. And then that band toured extensively and we were just wiped and went home. And were you the front man in that as well? Or was that more of a... My bandmate Alex was a primary singer and I was I sang some of the songs. So anyway, we'd just come home from that and that really like just went up on the beach and was done. I moved from Portland. out. I moved out kind of into the country to a little town called Scapoose and lived in my friend's cabin kind of the classic story. And I hadn't really dug into songwriting actually, like in a serious way before I went out there and I just really got after it. I like hold up with like Rolling Stones records. I had like probably like six CDs, the Rolling Stones, the Steve Malkmus record. There was just like a handful of records that I was just like listening to nonstop and playing music and splitting wood and keeping myself warm. And that was kind of it. And then out of that came Kareen. It was just a pop rock band. It was just me and my friends kind of having fun. And this was the record. So we put out two records. The first one was, you know, a scrappy little independent thing that we just did. And then the second one was this record, Crash Couture. And we went out and toured behind that one. All right. Then by 2007, you got a solo album. 2010, we've got an EP that's just you and your guitar. Then Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives around the same time, early 2010. Modern Kin, different band name, 2014. We have this jump to what we're about to hear now, Slang, which has a few of the same personalities. Take us up to date. Where are you at with Slang? I mean, why this eight-year gap? Was that that band coming together? Was their modern kin falling apart? The Pastor's Wives was a four-piece. And when we one of the bandmates wanted to leave and do something else, so the three of us kept on. And then we changed the name to Modern Kin and moved forward and just did some things pretty differently. But both of those bandmates that I played in Modern Kin, we'd been playing for like 15 years together. And actually... Chris, who plays bass, goes all the way back to the beginning. Like we were in Five O'Clock People together. So we'd been playing together forever. So as you can kind of probably guess, I mean, the ending of something like that is really challenging and difficult. And for me, it wasn't just about ending a band or whatever. It was about really like a change in my perspective and in my life. There's a lot of things changing in my life over this period. And I just needed to do something new and I didn't know what it was. I wanted to make a change and I just kind of had to wait for it to happen. You know, like sometimes you just got to go out in the wilderness, you know, and just scuffle around until, um, until things start coming together and you start finding some things. So that's how it was between modern kin and slang. Was this also age wise? I recall, you know, there's a definite difference in coming out of college, like we're trying to make it. And that sort of dream maybe lasts until you're like 28 or, you know, it depends when those projects fall apart. But for me, it was around turning 30 or whatever. And I moved somewhere else. And then it's like, okay, I still want to do music, but you know, I'm not going to be on MTV. Like it's reevaluating what the whole thing is for. Definitely. It was a life change. Being in a band has that Peter Pan thing where it's just like, you're just putting off any kind of growth and 
maturity just to kind of like have fun and be on the road and all that. And that's really what like Kareen was and then heading into the pastor's wives and all of that. So when that whole thing had kind of run its course, there's a lot of kind of like seeking and like what moves me about music and what is powerful and what's important enough to feel like it. Is there something important enough about music that it feels like I should continue and keep working? Janet and I were in a car accident during this time. And so there was like a year coming back from that. And then that rolled right straight into the pandemic. And then we lost two more years. So that's the other piece of this mm-hmm. is that there were some other stuff going on in the world. And we had just actually started getting slang together. We had just started playing some shows right before our car accident. And then we were kind of just laid up and then it was pandemic. And then we sort of lost a few years. So, And then when it was time to put this thing out, we finished the record and Kill Rock Stars said they would put it out a year from then. So then there's like another year. So some of this gap is not creative gap. Some of it is just practical life stuff too. But it all kind of feeds in. And I think that all of it has something to do with what this record is all about too. Yes. Let's, whether intentional or not, what you're just describing sounds like a thematic introduction for Cockroach in a Ghost Town, the song we're going to play off that. Can you say just a few words about it and then we'll hear it and then we'll talk in more in detail. You know, the song is about the end kind of like, there's a lot of things on this record that are about this, like just endings and all of the things that come with endings, all the different kinds of ways are really important shit in our life. And, and like, how do we deal with that? And then that's what this song's about. I don't want to have to start again. After it died again. I'm rubbing two sticks together again Cockroach in a ghost town again I don't want to have to start I haven't tried 
pick a horse, pick a horse. So this is one of those songs, one of my favorite bands in college was XTC and like Sense is Working Overtime that has a super catchy chorus, but the verse, like, what is this verse? In here, you've got a lot of kind of little creeping, you know, let's just creep up a half step, just a a funny chord progression for the verses. Can you say a little about how this song came together? Janet threw this show for a couple of years. It's a New Year's show and they would just do like a band representing each of the decades. And I was the singer for a couple of years for the 50s band. And it was cool because it was like, I really learned about how that music works. And it's totally different to like, you know, hear Blueberry Hill and to sing Blueberry Hill. Like it's unreal how well these songs work from the craft perspective. It's like, and I was just being blown away by Chuck Berry. And like, and then one of the things about the 50s band is, or the 50s songs is there's lots of stops in it. And there's stops in songs where the singer can, <laughs> singer blasts on through, you know, one for the money, two for the show, and then the band kicks in kind of thing. And so it's like, I think that got in here somewhere. And so it was like all the stops in there where I'm singing and then we play and then singing and playing. So there's like a funny 50s element, I feel, when I'm singing this song. But also this whole record, I was listening so much to Ziggy Stardust this, during, during this time. And so to me, it was like that kind of strumminess of the chorus was that real straightforward acoustic kind of thing in the middle of something that we could deconstruct and make it more artful and surprising. One of the things I'm always trying to do in music is to make it surprising to myself. You know, it's a simple chord progression and just shifting between the first half and the second half of the chord progression as though it's moving up and down a half step gave me like such a sense of surprise and interest singing wise, like what I could do with the melody as it moves from the one that seems like it's down to the one that's up. But it's also kind of disorienting and that's part of it too. So was this one that started in the writing with the disorienting part or started with the massive epic arena chorus here? It started with the verses. I find that verses are where I was kind of search and like, what's it all about? You know, like, where am I going? What am I feeling? I'm like, whatever. And then I kind of allow them to kind of lead me to the conclusion. Um, I rarely have a chorus first. It does happen, but this was one where I felt like because of the disorienting nature of the verses that the chorus needed to arrive in a big way, in a super clear way. Now, do these get written all as, you know, having heard your EP where you're just you and your guitar, these get written that they are playable in that format. And then you choose this weird palette that you have in the verses here, which it sounds like those are the creatures that inhabit this planet. So you're thinking those are more production decisions. The song can persist without that. Yeah. Most of the songs that I've written have been ones that I wanted to be able to present in a way that could just be me and my guitar. This is the most collaborative record that I've ever been a part of. Although other ones have had lots of collaboration too. But this one was very tight with Janet and I. And she's just an amazing ear. I would come in and I'd kind of play it in, play in the songs, you know, in some kind of rough demo form. And then she would come and kind of go like, what if it does this? What if it does that? And, you know, I would put some layers on and then we'd mute everything out and then we'd, you know, tweak that. And so a lot of the tweaks, you know, it was cool. I would just be upstairs doing something else and come down and be like, wow, it's like now it's taking on new colors. And I think it really helps me get to, from a words perspective, help me really feel like the songs got to the truth, you know, which is just like something I'm kind of like obsessed with. So the deconstruction of the recordings, I think a lot of them were, from Janet. And then we just kind of followed our bliss on that. It starts out in a more straightforward way or can be played in a more straightforward way. And then we just went from there and went after it. All right. Well, can we say a little more about the choice of these particular characters? So like you have this striking organ that answers from pretty early on. Is there a separate keyboardist in the band at all? Or is this is just you doing the guitars and the keyboards and whatever sort of filling in whatever sounds need? When we started slang, Janet and I had been seeing about like playing together and we just played as a kind of like as a two piece and did a bunch of cool covers. And as we, it kind of, as it kind of developed, we're like, well, let's start trying to think about doing some original songs and let's see what happens with some original songs. So the original recordings that became this record, maybe like two thirds of them were just done right here in this room with Janet and I. So all the overdubs are all um, she or I. So there isn't a keyboard player. Janet plays it live from the drum kit, but and that little sound that that's it. is that's just guitar through phony effects. Yeah, it's just playing in the studio. The sense of the uh, choral background vocals is that Janet singing that, or is that your bass player? Or I think Janet sang the vocals, and I sang some of them too. 
And then live now, all three of the bandmates are all like front people in their own bands and they're all great singers. So I feel really fortunate to have like such amazing singers in the band. It seems like there should be a, a significance about the difference between the ending and the end. Yeah. But I'm not sure that what that means to me is, but you repeat it enough times. There must be important that I dream about one of these, but not about the other. Can you decipher this a little? You know, it's kind of in the context of a dream, right? So even just thinking about it literally, like if it's just, we're going to take it straightforward, you know, like in a dream, I feel like you can be dying or something. But in my experience, I don't ever die in my dreams, you know, kind of like this idea of ending is different than end as an expression of where I was at in my life. And it's just the idea that things ending is very different than the end. Part of living is this thing where it's like things are always like being born and dying and like ending. But, you know, there's kind of only one end to your life in that big way. There's a lot of mortality in there too. Like it was a pretty bad car accident we were in. And it was my, the second one I've been in, in my life that was like put us in the hospital. So you grow up and especially maybe just especially in bands or something, and you have some sense of immortality. It's not about being immortal. It's just that that immortality means like it's a sense. It's a feeling. Immortality is a feeling, you know? The thing that life does is show you over and over that you're not, you're not in fact immortal and like serious things happen. And, you know, there's kind of a lot of thinking about mortality on this record too. And it's like, I've always been fascinated by how sad music or hard music or hard themes can be uplifting in a way. Um, mm-hmm. and I feel like as a songwriter is getting at the truth, it, is such a great feeling to be like, yeah, like where you resonate and in a sense of like, this is true. Oh my God. Like I'm getting perspective on the world right now. And so like, to me, a lot of these songs maybe are on some hard, darker themes, but it feels very uplifting because they're like, they're like Eureka kind of moments and epiphanies about how not to die, but how to live and how to find what you love and find what's worth living. So I think I know the answer to this one already, but so you've got a, a very vivid metaphor here with the cockroach in ghost town and you could set that up, like, even though it is a metaphor for something, the ending and the end in real life, but then let the metaphor do some of the work of like, well, what am I going to say in the next verse? Well, what is this character in a post-apocalyptic wasteland or something doing as opposed to, no, I'm sitting with an emotional state. And so I can come up with a new metaphor for every verse and they don't even have to necessarily match as long as they sort of sonically sound similar enough. It's more a self-reading through dream imagery as opposed to, now I'm in the dream. What happens next in the dream and using narrative logic? Is it all narrative logic or is it all personal reported? I was listening back to that Next Lips record, which I guess we'll talk about in a little bit. But I mean, my subconscious is like trying to get at something. The story is the through line. The story is like the thing behind the thing. And so like, you know, it's like I'm flipping tarot cards or something, you know, and like the thing that's being gathered is the whole that kind of rises out of that. Okay. The second verse cannot be a narrative a linear narrative story from the first verse necessarily as you take the images in, right? It's thinking about poetry. It's like, what's the relationship between one line and the next line of a poem kind of thing. And sometimes they can be related and sometimes they can be unrelated. You know, by the time we get to this last bridge, I don't know what's the sound of an unplugged clock. I got a foot on land and one in another dimension. Well, there's nothing I haven't tried. I got to pick a horse, pick a horse. Like that doesn't sound like it comes thematically. Like that could have been attached to a whole different thing. It is reflecting the same inner truth and, you know, the struggle that you're trying to express with the song, but it doesn't sound particularly post-apocalyptic, for instance, as the rest of the imagery. You know, maybe the imagery is kind of out there and the last verse, it kind of comes home more. And then the scene goes to the person singing, the character of the person singing. I got a foot on land and one in another dimension. There's nothing I have tried. I got to pick a horse. You wake up in the morning and all this stuff is over and it's a wasteland. And then how do you start putting one foot in front of the other? Although it's interesting then that you're still using, even though pick a horse is barely a metaphor, it's just an expression, <laughs> but it's still a, technically a metaphorical expression as opposed to like, no, now I'm just going to, we're getting real. I'm just going to state, you know, I have to make a choice. I mean, I guess something that bald wouldn't sound poetic enough. I don't know. In the, in the context. On some level, it's how would Drew say it? That's just what I said. If I would have thought I got to make a choice. Maybe that would be what the ending was, but like the thing, I got to pick a horse, you know, on some level, it's, there's like a million options in front of you and none of them look good, but you just got to pick a horse, you know? Well, let's get the second song out there. This is another one. So abandoned from Modern Kin, 2014, the self-titled, the eponymous album. This is the opening track. 
really just struck me as like profoundly strange. I saw on your Bandcamp, you said this is sort of your David Byrne track. And I could see like, okay, yeah, the talking, <laughs> I could see some of that. Can you say a little, a few words about how this one was put together before we hear it? And then we'll talk more in detail. If the slang record I was listening to Ziggy Stardust, then on that Modern Kin record, it was Remain in Light. That was what was surprising and fun and interesting to me was this kind of stream of consciousness. Again, it's just like, how, how does that kind of like all fit together? And then how do you attach things that are a stream of consciousness and seemingly unrelated how do you kind of focus them through the prism of the chorus? And that's what this was too. So yes, I also, from that same thing on Bandcamp, you said that this one is one that started with the chorus, which is peculiar because it's... Da, na, 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 na. It is catchy after I've heard it a few times, <laughs> but it initially seems sort of just as startling as the rest of the song. Can you say a little more about when you write these things, are you generally sitting down with a guitar and it sort of comes out hands and mind at the same time? 
Or it sounds like from your description here that this is the kind of thing of sort of rolling around in your head, you know, that you could actually be divorced from a commercial jingle as this sounds like that you could still have this, that be the catchy thing that was going around in your head that sparked the rest of the song. I love hearing your perspective. <laughs> it doesn't seem strange to me at all, but I can't hear it from the outside. So I don't know. I'm interested in like bending expectations and bending norms where it's a acoustic guitar and a bass and drums and a singer. You know, we've all heard this, right? It's not blips and blops. We're not inventing anything new in terms of tones or sounds on that record. I mean, you know, it's like you sit down with your acoustic guitar and you play a G chord or whatever it is, and it already means something to everyone. Just the sound of that chord, you know, you strum an A minor, like that's a thing. You know, you strum a D, that's a thing. And so I want to use those norms and those, the way that those things feel to carry the words across when those norms are related to what I'm trying to say. And that when I'm trying to say something that's new, I want it to not ring anybody's bells, like in that sense. Like I want people to feel like, wait, what? You know, and then the words and the music might surprise them in the same way and allow them to feel something new. Well, and you do do that with tones. I mean, even though, yes, okay, I can hear there's guitar, bass and drums, but it's like three layers of guitar and you have, you know, set up a wall of sound and then we're going in the next section, like going about 30 seconds in the bass drums out. You change the wall of sound to a different texture so that you can then bring back the first one. And like, so you've got these changes that don't rely, you know, that distract people from maybe I'm just playing D, A and G, but the tones speak louder than the the chords in that case. In the case of this song, I'm playing an acoustic guitar, but I made this tuning of a guitar that I just call the Sea Monster, which I guess is, I invented it for me. I find that I, I just find in life that I do this all the time as I'm constantly reinventing something that somebody else already invented. You know, it's like Velvet Underground already did this where everything is all one note. You know, it's like octaves of the same note. So tuning the bottom E down to a C. So all my guitars are already tuned down to C. I could just playing for my voice. It already works like that. And then this particular one, the C monster was like, it's all C's. So it's like three different octaves of C. And so then like the slide is just moving on that. It's really fun to play. It's like really powerful. And like when the acoustic plays a melody, it's like six strings playing the melody. It's really kind of like, and then I played it through this super reverb Fender amp with, you know, tons of make it really loud and everything like that. So that was kind of the hint behind that. So there, there isn't a strumming the G chord on that song, but the slide guitars that you hear and the, the acoustic, even the strumming is all just like, you know, you can play just like a couple of strings and like move them around while the other ones are droning and allow that to be part of the harmony of your singing or to change the feel of what, whether there's a chord change, that kind of stuff. Once you get a slide out, then you're not even playing a guitar anymore. <laughs> it's as far as that it's a stringed instrument now. Uh, so is there actual cello on this that answering under the ooh, like that's Chris's upright bass and she bow Okay, it. yeah. And then it sounded like though there was a high string on the other speaker that was going with that, like a violin or something, but you, that, that's also just her playing a couple octaves up, maybe? Yeah, I think that was just a slide guitar. Okay, all right. That was kind of like one of my things at that time I was interested in. It was like, you know, like in traditional Irish music or in like whatever, lots of folk traditions around the world where like everything plays the same melody. Every single instrument is playing the same melody at the same time kind of thing. And like, I was just kind of interested in that. The first time that that happens, you just have the strings and then you introduce the, okay, we're going to sing over this later in the live version of this, because you got a live album that, uh, you know, at the end where the, the ooze that you end up harmonizing against your bandmates to just, like, if we're going to do it four times, then the last two times I got to jump up to a higher thing to just make there be a reason for it to continue this long. Yeah, just a variation. And mm -hmm. what about this whole, I wrote Teenage Wasteland, like sequenced keyboard that, you know, starts off the whole song. Like, what are you using Ableton on stage or something? Or that probably wasn't even in the live version, I believe. It's not in the live version. No, that was just in the record. And that's like the talking heads, you know, one note that goes through the whole song kind of thing. You don't even need a click track. Well, it's not really on the rhythm, but it's something that's up there. Also, a lot of that band is heavy and kind of low and kind of howly. And there was just room up there to put some like shimmer on top. I was just in, in love with the talking heads at that point. And we were like, let's just put that on there. I think. Janet actually produced that record. And so I think that actually was one of her ideas was like, you're loving talking head so much. Let's try this keyboard idea. So is she maybe responsible for that particular choice of vocal reverb? Or is this something that seems to be, you know, one of the things that makes your singing in Korean sound like it's not the same person that it's, I don't know, I think white stripes or, but it's back to like, 
screaming Jay Hawkins or, you know, other folks like that, that, you know, are doing some kind of blues based thing, but like, let's just wreck our voices as much as we can (laughs) push it beyond its natural limits. The singers I'm most influenced by in my adult life have been all singers that are pushing themselves in that way. You know, whether it's Tom Waits, Scream Jay Hawkins. I was going to say Tom Waits, but thankfully your voice did not then destroy itself in the way so that Tom Waits can only do that now. It's sing like Cookie Monster. The other thing about him, though, is like, I think just song to song, like the way that he would take on characters. And even though they were all sort of in the same thing, some are very singing and some are just barking only and all of that. And like, yeah, I mean, I think at this point, like I was listening to so much Tom Waits and Nick Cave too, like those Grinderman records, the stream of consciousness imagery and stuff was really influenced by Nick Cave too. And at that time too, and that's ongoing, but I think you're right. I think that kind of slap back, it sounds live because of the slappy echoness of it, you know? I've always felt like a certain kind of resonance with that, wanting to just like stand and deliver. I played guitar in a different band for a bit, this band called Vigilantes of Love. And we did a tour in England. And I remember one of the openers, this guy just came out with his guitar, just this great big strapping lad, you know, and, you know, denim from head to toe and just stood there and just like stood and delivered. And I remember like, this is like early in my career. And I was just like, something about me, I just really resonated with that, like this idea of just stand and deliver. And so there's something about the way that that vocal sound affects kind of like how that works. You know, then when you see it live, it's going to sound kind of like that, you know, like you're going to feel those same feelings. Just putting like a tight delay, a very short delay on yourself. So that, I mean, that was the Lennon trick. And this is very much what I associate that he always wanted to in in the later days, like do these things, pumping his voice. And you only hear that in you know, a few things off the White Album or something. But by the time you get to, uh, you know, his first solo albums, then like, oh, I've been unleashed in terms of like how nasty, how growly that I can be. He too, he was just in love with 50s rock and roll. That record, the Rise Rock and Roll record, you know, like after the Beatles is over and everything, it's like, he was just going back. He just, he's like, that's what I loved. And I went back to what I loved. And I think that that vocal effect is related. I haven't noticed if there was anything in your catalog that approaches the sort of cold turkey, just wailing. I had a little of that in my background, but mostly like, let's drench that in reverb and put it in the back. But yeah, you've got, you got some of that on here that you've got the ooze and you're answering it with your hey hey's that you're doing the lead singer thing. Right. Yeah. Just kind of vamping and, and extending it. And that's one of the things I really like doing live too, is like really be there and like really be in that room and really be with those people and really allow my vocal energy and my presence to let's do something unique together tonight, you know, and then like let it go over the top if that's what it wants to do. Well, I was also surprised just hearing the live version that you've got your acoustic thing, but that you just combine that all into one guitar and that it still like conveys the song, I guess, because of that idiosyncratic tuning and like, okay, it's definitely the same riff. It's not that you, you know, had to teach half of it to somebody else, but that it comes through well enough, even though it doesn't have those, I would think that, you know, having that pulsing acoustic is necessary, but no, it actually worked okay. It's still the song. The fundamental part of that song is the acoustic I'm playing. And so it still holds. We had played it live a bunch before we recorded it. And it was like working as a live song in our set. So That's interesting. So you already have the part where you're basically, I'm going to break this part that I'm doing live into two or three parts and that it's going to be an acoustic and electric and another electric and just be able to layer them in that way. All right. Everything's following the same swell. Like they're all kind of moving together. So it was pretty seamless. Before we talk about the next song, let's get to our sponsor messages. I want to tell you, as often happens about Masterclass. Masterclass is essentially a streaming service. It's got hundreds of video lessons from more than a 100 of today's most brilliant minds, and you can stream that via iOS, Android, desktop, Apple TV, Amazon, Fire TV, or Roku. And it's not like those other streaming services, a bunch of crappy reality shows or dramas that will bore you with their drama. This is your idols. Now, I don't know you. I don't know who your idols are exactly, but I bet there's somebody on here. For me, it is Steve Martin. It is Danny Elfman. It is Cornel West. This is David Sedaris. There are many musicians, writers, creative people of all types. You could delve deeply into a particular class or you could skate around and try things here or there. I am seeing what looks like a new course here. Black History, Freedom, and Love, Lessons from Influential Black Voices. So I mentioned Cornel West. There's Angela Davis. There's John McWhorter, Kimberley Williams Crenshaw. If you're wondering what is all that stuff about critical race theory, a lot of people are complaining about it. 
Maybe you actually want to learn what it is and hear a discussion between Cornel West, John McWhorter, and Jeleny Cobb about knowing the black intellectual tradition. And then turn to the next lesson is Sherilyn Eiffel, I don't know how to pronounce it, unpacking the shameful history of lynching in America and talking about how the law deals with that. This course is 54 lectures long, but all very short, 12 minutes, 15 minutes, 8 minutes. Why would you not want a basic cultural education? And I would stress that this is just the kind of thing you stumble upon because you're already attracted to, as a listener of this podcast, what Carlos Santana and Christina Aguilera and Metallica and St. Vincent and Ringo Starr and the many other musicians that you have on here have to say. I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every masterclass. And as a nakedly examined music listener, you get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash NEM now. That's masterclass.com slash NEM for 15% off masterclass. And I bet people who listen to my commercials know what I'm going to tell you about next because it's still Nebia. Nebia by Moen. Let me ask you, have you ever taken a shower? If you haven't, you should try taking a shower. It is an excellent way to get clean. But then there are choices. Do you just go with the, the crappy shower that they've put in your house? No, that is a terrible choice. Because why? Because it does not make you feel like you're in a luxury spa and it wastes a lot of water. Well, the folks at Nebia are passionate, passionate filled with passion about the shower experience, and they've used their considerable technical know-how through their years working with Apple, Tesla, NASA, to create the Nebia by Moen Quattro. That's the new one. All the Nebia by Moen showers offer very strong-feeling water pressure, yet using only half the water, saving the planet. They're very easy to install. It's a three-minute process, like putting in a light bulb. But the Quattro, well, it's got that word four in there. So there's four different modes. There's a little switch on the side. You can do it even while you're showering. You can confuse your skin by going from the hard spray mode to the angel hair mode to the soft spray mode. I do like the soft spray mode. It is the the signature spa-like feeling to give you a drenching, misty experience. So it's a pretty small cost to upgrade your life. Nebia by Moen Quattro starts at just $119 exclusively on Nebia.com. And Nebia gave us a special discount just for our community. Go to Nebia.com slash N-E-M and use code N-E-M at checkout to get 10% off all Nebia products. Again, go to Nebia.com slash N-E-M. That's N-E-B-I-A dot com slash N-E-M. Check out what they have to offer and save 10% with the code NEM. All right, let's get the third one out there. So Spider, going back to your first solo album, Next Lips. This is another kind of <laughs> grungy, growly, a little bit, you know, it's not all your songs are this dark. You have some very nice strum strum pretty songs, but this is another one, though not as ferocious as the others. Uh, can you say a little about where you were at with this song? It's funny. Some of my friends who know me well said that they thought that the slang record feels to them like the Next Lips record. And Next Lips happened at the end of Kareen. And when I was, again, just kind of like a little lost, you know? And so there's some similarities there that were totally unintentional that I guess are just me then and me now. And the me is the same person. And so this song is on theme sort of for where I'm at now, but coming through a younger person. And I grew up really religious. My parents are like missionaries and I grew up in a very religious scenario. And you know, one of my life's work is understanding that and making my own decisions about life and about the nature of existence. And for me to come to terms with it, I don't believe there's, a, I don't believe in God. I don't, can't imagine that there's any kind of like religion in that kind of context that they describe and that I was raised with. And that's just for anyone who's been raised that way to kind of ask those questions can be just brutal. And so I was still at that point, I was still unpacking all of that stuff. So this is an earlier me unpacking. Getting black like a spider Getting fast like a fighter I'm going out, outside Getting young, keep getting younger You want narrow, here's wider
All right, so again, we have some nice mixing the acoustic texture with your slide guitars and things. Even right from the beginning, I was trying to figure out like, oh, did you do the trick where the guitars are actually playing the upbeats, but it sounds like they're playing the downbeat. But I think, no, you just, the fact that you play seven hits before the drums come in, just to screw. <laughs> One got chopped off in the mixing. To make, or was that intentional from the start? Do you remember? You know, I don't remember exactly. <laughs> All right, this happened. is a long time ago. I don't, I don't blame you about that. But yeah, I went to thematically what you were just talking about, like abandoned. You know, pastors' wives, you got things that you put right in the theme of the way you're presenting your work, that these religious themes are part of your psychological makeup that, you know, even if you don't explicitly believe in it, you're talking in this song about being redeemed, going back to being clean, some sort of washing in the water kind of thing and abandoned, you know, is clearly has that as if we're abandoned by God, you know, as if this existential kind of take. Continue. (laughs) This This is so interesting for me. Tell me more how this works insofar as you recall in writing this as a poem. I'm getting black like a spider. I'm, you know, here and wanting to be just sort of narrating your suffering or something like that. Well, I think it's, you know, one of those like Tom Waits things that I remember from an interview, he talked about the different kinds of songs. And one of the kinds of songs he described is like a braggadocio sort of, you know, this song's like, I look good without a shirt, you know, like putting himself out there in this way that's bragging. You know, and that's like one of his styles of songs. And so like, I think as songwriters, we're thinking about forms and which one, how to take on different kinds of forms. And I think that's one that sort of resonated with me. There's something innately false about bragging, but it's a way that you can kind of express aspects of who you are. And I think that like, in this case, this character singing this, you know, this spider, it's like, there's some of it is just like, I'm getting young, keep getting younger. I mean, obviously it's not literal, but you know, there's a sense of like, the choruses take me back In, in a relationship sense. It's someone who has lost their person and they're saying, take me back. And like the verses are saying, I'm good. I'm going to be better than ever kind of thing, you know? And the chorus is kind of saying like, okay, actually I'm super desperate and take me back, (laughs) you know, kind of thing. And whether it's to take me back to a person or take me back in a sense of like time or to a nature of existence, that would be relief to the current. You know, that's all these things are kind of true. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned the character of braggadocious and I wasn't necessarily reading this, getting young, you want narrow, here's wider, you know, but that goes with the sort of pushing of the voice. It's hard to be, to have a really vulnerable voice in rock and roll. Of course, a lot of people do, but insofar as they do, they're not doing rock and roll, right? You know, rock and roll is about milking it. And even if I'm saying something depressing, like, well, I can do it in an evil way, or I could, you know, (laughs) you can sort of lay something on so that it is performable as opposed to, I always pull Sid Barrett out of my catalog of somebody that by the point of his solo work was not doing that at all. And it's kind of, there's at least got to be some crooning. You could be Nick Drake, you could be all smooth, but you know, you're using vibrato, you're using something. So it's still a performance. I mean, are you sort of going between characters here in, or do you feel even the take me back, you know, you're not being your most vulnerable, that you're still performing, you're still. I mean, the whole thing feels vulnerable to me. It's the point where it's like, I'm almost uncomfortable going back to it because it's so raw. Vulnerability to me is not about your tone of voice. It's about what you're saying. I feel very comfortable using all sorts of kind of voice to allow people in. And I recognize that certain kinds of tones of voice pushes people away, but that's part of the tension of the thing. There's couples that just scream at each other all the time and they love each other and their tone of voice isn't off-putting to each other. And I don't think a lot of people would like that very much. But what you're doing when you're singing or when you're performing, I feel like is you're presenting what occurs to you, you know, like who you are. And I think that it's not as, not by design or something. I don't have a record full of blues licks because I can't play blues licks. You know, like I don't, I'm not that kind of lead guitar player, but I'm a singing voice. I'm finding some things I can kind of do. And then how do I use that in the context to try to tell the truth and try to present this thing like in a way that, that feels true to me? Well, there's also, besides the tone of voice, the engineering that I think Steve Kilby that I was talking to recently from the church was talking about just the shouting thing that you're saying, like that does create a distance. It's a, a performance. It's an opera. It's a, you know, something. Whereas what this whole song, even in the braggadocious parts is pretty tight mic'd and like there's an intimacy that is brought on right there that if I'm going to be mean, I'm going to really slice the knife in. And if I'm going to be vulnerable, it's going to really, you know, you're going to see that and you can do both. So you're very much on display here in a way that in abandon, that's not the persona. That is more, I'm standing a foot from the mic because I need to gesticulate with my arms and, (laughs) you know, whatever David Byrne does when he's doing that. 
I actually didn't remember that spider was so close, was so intimate sounding. That's interesting you mentioned that. Like I noticed it too. It's like a, it feels really close, you know, and I'm kind of singing in both the octaves, the lower octave and the higher octave. And I didn't remember that too about it. And yeah, it's interesting, you know, like going back and trying to remember what did I do and why did I do that at that time? Do you remember about the choice of, so like I thought maybe, oh, it says, actually says fuzz bass in your fan camp and even the drums, like the way that they're engineered has that sort of Tom Waits, like, don't just make it sound like a shiny kit that could be in a Van Halen song. It's like, make it sound a little nasty. And the drummer on that at that time is a dear friend, Jeremiah Hayden, and he and I both just love Tom Waits. And in fact, the reason why it sounds like Tom Waits is because we mixed at Prairie Sun in the, where Tom Waits did those bone machine and mule variations. So like we reamped instruments into the room where he was recording. So like, this is like, it's literal. Like we just went there and it was just like our Mecca, you know, like we were like, Oh my God, we, we made it. And we spent a week there with those guys and, and mixed it there. All right. I want to insert a clip here where you go through this parade of odd chords to leave the key and then eventually come back here. So that we finally get back to what I thought was a new key, but it ends up it's the original key. You know, by the time your voice has gotten super high, the modulations and how to get back is you know one of the skills of songwriting. If you want to hear some crazy modulations? Just you know, listen to all those singer songwriters in the seventies. Like you know, listen to a Carpenter's record. Like it's just the way that that was happening at that. You know, it's like listen to Jackson Brown. It's like I've always been kind of interested in that. Again, it's like about surprise for me. There's a little bit of like tension of what I'm what I'm singing about is like added to by this tension of can this song possibly land? Where is it going to land? You know, like kind of <laughs> yeah. thing. And then when it comes right back and you're just home again, mm-hmm. you know, you're sitting down again and you're back where you were. I love that. I love the, the way that modulations can work and come back. And when it does it well, I get excited kind of like as I'm kind of working on it and I can feel it kind of happening. Even in the in the moment when I'm writing it, I'm just like, okay, it's this, it's that, it's this, it's that. It's that. And I like feel it. And it gives me a real sense of the song had the arc that I was hoping. And I wasn't listening for this specifically in your later stuff, but it, I mean, this seems like a tool that you do not use very commonly. My way of using it is a little bit different now. I create like that pull away and return now in a way that's less craftily done or less clever or something. There's something about, and you know, when I was younger, I didn't get to have a good sense that about how that cleverness would come off. And I think just as I get older, it feels less true for me to be more clever and I want it to be simpler. So there are still modulations, but it's not as um, ornate or something. Well, at least this one sort of is all within a section. It's not then that you like, oh, let's have another chorus in the other key and have it exist there for a while, which is a sure way to get your bandmates to hate you. Like I knew how to play the song and now you want me to play the whole thing in a, in a slightly different key. Like, okay. <laughs> Even at that time, you know, I was beginning kind of going down this road where I kind of wanted to make music that we described in the band as just kind of being dumb. And by that, what we meant was not dumb, like in a derogatory not sense. Not Steely Dan. <laughs> not ninth chords, not just something primitive. We're a bunch of white kids from the suburbs and like whatever, but like I had grown up enough around gospel that like I a real like pulse in my gut for what simplicity and repetition can do and all of that. And as I got older and I got out of the heavy handedness of all of that and then you know, I continue to be just really turned on by like Howlin' Wolf, Smokestack Lightning. Like it's just the whole song, keeping it simple. So, you know, I went to University of Washington and I, and I studied music and part of me is still interested in the technical side and like, oh my gosh, I can move that and I can do that and then bring that back, you know? But like, I don't feel like for the audience. And I think if what you're saying today is any reflection, you know, some of that just ends up feeling sort of weird to people. If I don't have a strong home base where it comes back and it's just like all these guitars just pulsing on, you know, at one note or like a real strong home key that is very simple. And like Cockroach in a Ghost Town, the chorus is repetitive as a break from the chromatic verses. Yeah, chromatic yeah. verses. It's just simple and it allows you to rest a little. You know, you feel a sense of rest into this meaning of whatever the chorus is saying, you know. 
Was there, I mean, you've mentioned some glam and was there like a Prague period somewhere in your listening interest? You know, that stuff went into Bowie and went into David Byrne, but there's post-punk is a different thing than like full on. Is there a symphony somewhere in your back catalog? I never connected uh-huh. with music that seems to me to be look what I can do kind of music mm-hmm. where it's like, whether it's guitar solos or whether it's like crazy, you know, like you mentioned Steely Dan or something like it's neat. I'm interested in like, what are we talking about right now? You know? And so to me, I just want it to be a little more personal and less pushed back in the context of, I was never a rush fan. And I understand now as I get older, like what that's all doing and that's totally communicating. I understand it now, but for that kind of younger person kind of reason, I never got into it. So I was interested in symphony, you know, I was interested in um, 17th century art music and learning, you know, what the symphony can do and, and what those instruments can do. And over the years, I've had the privilege to be able to write some, arrangements for people for songs and for my own bands for, for songs, whether string quartets or whatever, but nothing proggy, I don't think. Yeah. Sort of as a final thing before we introduce the last song, I mean, so how, so how does this work in your, uh, we've talked about the sort of the breaks and things, but like, are you holding down a day job through all this? Like, are you balancing the production work versus your own stuff versus the other things you're doing in the music world and otherwise hustling to get by? Music is a hustle. It's 1% are making good money at this and everybody else is hustling. And, you know, there's no middle class in, in music kind of thing. So, I mean, I've had stretches of years where I played music and that was my full time thing, whether it was publishing money and, you know, like back when people bought records, you know, in a significant numbers and, you know, pre streaming and all of that and like touring and being able to do that for years at a time. But then also, especially like during these lulls where I'm between bands and whatever, I was actually in, at university, I was a gymnast in college. And so like I coach kids and that's my day job is that I coach gymnastics to little kids, which is, it's fun. And it's a, I say it's like the perfect foil for music because music for me is, can be very like all just absorbing and, and dark and all of that. And kids are absorbing, but not dark. And so that's been a, that's been a cool thing that's been able to kind of like keep the roof over my head all these years. Excellent. Well, let's wrap up here by introducing the last song. We wanted another one from Slang off of the new album here. King Gun is the one you picked. I think it is the probably the catchiest one on here. Say a few words about it and then we'll say goodbye. This one is it's just like a pop rock and roll song, pretty much. It's on all the themes. Um, it's cool. Um, for the recording, Janet was in the, that band Wild Flag with Mary Timoney mm-hmm. from Washington X-Hex and all of this, all the bands. And she was able to play lead guitar on the song. Which actually kind of pushed the direction of the band because we, at that point, we didn't have bandmates yet. And it was when Mary played the guitar on this that we were like, maybe we should get a lead guitar player. And then we reached out to Anita, who I love and think is amazing. And, and she's been part of the band since then. So that's kind of the future of this song. And here it is, King Gun.
Thanks so much to Drew, a very thoughtful composer with a very unique style. I was glad to get a handle on for this episode. You can find all of Drew's albums, whether by Slang or Drew Grow and the Pastor's Wives or Drew Grow on Bandcamp, though of the three artists named Kareen there, his was not one of them. I will remind you to be subscribed directly to the Nakedly Examined Music feed to make sure you get all of these episodes in a timely manner. Or even better, you might even get them sooner and certainly without ads if you are subscribed to my Patreon or through the paid Nakedly Examined Music feed through Apple Podcasts. Why don't you just go visit patreon.com slash music? My next episode will be my interview with Richie Ramon. That's right, there is a Ramon that is still alive. He's not one of the original Ramones, but he's an important Ramon, and he was an interesting guy, though kind of hostile to my format. So it's a pretty amusing interview. I was just interviewed today for the Jughead's Basement podcast. I'm sure he's not going to post it for a while, but you should check that out by John Jughead Pearson, one of my past guests on this podcast at jugheadsbasementpodcast.com. I also had my first published book come out. It's called Philosophy for Teens. You can find that on Amazon or wherever. It's going to be in like Walmart. It's crazy. So it's written down, so it's readable by young teens, but it's okay for adults too. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you're all doing well. Keep on musicking. Until next time, this is Mark Casey Meyer signing off.